The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We start inevitably with our hero, Dr. Johnson, who said in 1776, Nothing odd will do long. Tristram Shandy did not last. It might be the most mistaken literary opinion he ever expressed. 200 and almost 50 years later. The book is still respected. Centaur Classics ranked it number 26 on their list of the 100 greatest novels ever written. Entertainment Weekly had it as 89th. The BBC judged it to be the 47th greatest British novel ever. It was more popular with the 100 Spanish authors consulted by the newspaper El País, who ranked it number 11. British newspapers go even farther. The Telegraph ranked it 20th, The Observer had it as 7th, and The Guardian put it at 6th. We're talking, of course, about the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, by Lawrence Stern. We look at one of the earliest examples of an avant-garde novel today on the history of literature. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We're getting a lot of warm and wonderful feedback to our episode with Yang Wang from last week. I listened as if I were hypnotized, wrote one listener. Entrancing, mesmerizing. I've never heard anyone discuss censorship and its effect on the human mind in quite such a way. That's the kind of comments we're getting. It was a true highlight, and I hope you have time to catch that one. Yang Wang novelist talking with me about Middlemarch. I've been digging into Lawrence Stern lately. We've got, ooh, we've got Henry James coming up, people. A good deep dive into the beast in the jungle. What a story. And if you know me at all, you know that it's the kind of story that makes me throw the book against the wall at the beginning then stomp around my little reading room, then pick up the book, keep going, and end flat on my back leveled by Henry James, absolutely leveled. Chekhov can get me like this, and Alice Munro, and not too many others. James Joyce with the dead, I suppose. James, Henry James, does it with this story. I think we're going to do a little something different for those episodes. And of course, we're working our way toward our Machado de Assis episode with our Brazilian friend, Claudia. That should be fun. I thought we should do Cervantes first. Before we get there, along with today's subject, Lauren Stern and Tristram Shandy. Lauren Stern, the country vicar who started firing satirical bullets in his mid-40s, writing for fame and not to be fed, he famously said, although in the end he was fed pretty well by this book, although he was dying, so he didn't really live long enough to enjoy the feast. The end. No, 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 no. We're not done yet. That may have sounded like the end, but we're not ending yet. We're just beginning. This is a beginning. That that would be interesting, wouldn't it? A nice, tight little episode. But this beginning is kind of like the famous one in the works of Vladimir Nabokov. Quote, once upon a time, there lived in Berlin, Germany, a man called Albinus. He was rich, respectable, happy. One day he abandoned his wife for the sake of a youthful mistress. He was loved, 
was not loved and his life ended in disaster. End quote. That's the opening paragraph to Nabokov's novel, Laughter in the Dark. And that's kind of what we did, wasn't it, dear listener? Here was an Anglican priest who was sick. He wrote a satirical work that's still famous. He died the end. Do you need more? Well, what does Nabokov say? How did he justify continuing a whole novel's worth of prose after giving us that summer, summarizing opening? The next paragraph of Laughter in the Dark is, quote, This is the whole of the story, and we might have left it at that had there not been profit and pleasure in the telling. And although there is plenty of space on a gravestone to contain, bound in moss, the abridged version of a man's life, detail is always welcome. End quote. Profit and pleasure in the telling and detail is always welcome. So we will begin with some thoughts on another satirical work, and that is the American animated show The Simpsons. Perhaps you've heard of it. Hopefully you know it from its first 10 years or so when it was truly groundbreaking and truly excellent. It had been a while since an animated show had been written for grown-ups in prime time, and a lot of the writers were coming from other sitcoms, but mostly from Saturday Night Live and other real-life shows. Real people, I mean, real sets, real actors. And one of the things you find when you write for a Hollywood production is that there's a limit to what you can do. Let's have 20 helicopters, you might say. We can do a spoof of Apocalypse Now. And the producer says, great idea, and here's your budget. Can you make zero helicopters work? You put a character in makeup, well, that might take four hours for that actor, and so you aren't going to change how he or she looks six times in a minute. It won't be worth it. You won't have time to film the episode this week. But animation, feel free, be my guest. You are just drawing. Send them all to outer space. Excellent. No need to worry about building a set or having paying for the CGI. And the writers said, we could do anything with The Simpsons. There were no limits, no budgetary restrictions. The characters could get old and young immediately. You could do this elaborate thing for one five-second joke. We could fly around. Our imagination was unleashed. That's all about the format and the excitement of breaking the rules. In those interviews with the early Simpsons writers, the freedom of it for the creative mind. But there's more to satire than that, and we see that in Tristram Shandy. There's the object of satire. You might be satirizing a movie or a TV show or, in Shandian terms, a type of character or a way of thought or a philosophical viewpoint. In Sternland, we also see a satirical undermining of the form itself. The Simpsons did this too. They made fun of television shows. Stern is like that. He takes on the whole project of writing novels as fair game for his winks and tweaks and nose-thumbing. I think Dr. Johnson, who was fairly conservative in his outlook and temperament, if not always in his politics, but sometimes, I think he objected to the breaking of rules because he liked rules. He liked the establishment. He liked working within it. He liked order. He himself more or less gave up writing poetry because he thought Dryden and Pope had perfected the form. That's how little he cared for innovation. 
So it's easy to say, well, Stern was a bomb thrower. He was ready to attack everything. He was more of a rebel. He was taking on the church or the monarchy or the legal system or the medical profession or the prevailing conventional wisdom of the day. So, of course, he would take on novels, too. And I think that's more or less where Dr. Johnson stopped. I like the system. You apparently hate it. So what can we have in common? Nothing for me to see here. But there's a problem with this analysis. It misses an important point. Think about The Simpsons. What do they spoof in their shows? They might have an episode that takes on Citizen Kane. Let's say Mr. Burns is the young Citizen Kane and the show has parodies or homages to all the famous themes and moments in that famous film. And they're doing this not because they hate Citizen Kane, but because they love it, too. Dr. Johnson, when he's talking about literature and ideas, he might be the equivalent of a host on the film channel, reverentially discussing the innovations of Citizen Kane and the triumphs of Orson Welles and the cinematography. The film is presented to us in that context as if it's worthy of being in a museum, which it, of course, is. But the Simpsons aren't tearing it down because they hate the movie. They might hate some of the pomp around it, but they clearly love it too, and they love the idea of paying tribute to it by putting jokes inside their show, by rethinking from the viewpoint, rethinking the film from the viewpoint of the world of Springfield and all its characters. If you come to Lawrence Stern or to Jonathan Swift, or to Rabelais, or to the other great satirists. It's wrong to view it as just bomb-throwing, as just you're angry, you're frustrated, you're left out, you're not part of the establishment, so you want to tear everything down because you resent it. There may be some of that, but we can also view it as wanting to immerse yourself in all the thoughts of the day, all the currents of the time, all the ideas that are most interesting and most influential and most impressive, but at the same time seeing them for what they are, which often means exposing their holes, pushing them to their extremes, laughing at the general human comedy that has produced them and that wants us to take them seriously and to take ourselves seriously. Tristram Shandy, the novel, is often viewed as an example of, quote, learned wit, end quote. Let's talk about what that means for the book and for us. I want to talk first about one other innovator, this one in the field of sports writing, Bill Simmons. Some of you may know him. Some of you may not. I'll tell you what you need to know. Somehow, that guy, Bill Simmons, changed sports writing. And I've read a lot of Bill Simmons, and I've listened to a lot of Bill Simmons, and I think he has some skills and some talents. He can be entertaining, but he's not a great intellect. How in the world did this guy change sports writing, it's fair to ask. His critics might say, well, he he was a, a clown and a jokester and irreverent. He exposed the reverence that sports columnists expressed toward the game, all the it's springtime and the dew is on the grass in left field kind of thing. Or the coach has been around, you know, columns like this, right? You remember those? The coach has been around and has seen the world and knows one thing, talent will always take a backseat to character. Stuff like that. Cliches. There's a right way to play this game and a wrong way. Or just the, the peons to the eternal youth of springtime or the pains of defeat. 
and the joys of victory and so on. And some people look at Bill Simmons and say, well, he, his was the first real internet voice that was willing to make fun of all that and who realized that you could write just as long as you wanted on the internet. There was no need to fit everything into 300 words or whatever the column length was. The internet could go long. So he had new and funny ideas. He was irreverent and he could explode the old format. But that wasn't enough. Bill Simmons had one key insight. He was writing about Boston sports, but he was writing on AOL, back then, America Online, and his audience was national, international even. He was caught between two paradigms. On the one hand, he liked the style of certain Boston newspaper columnists who were knowing, who dropped references, who were insidery, who spoke the language of the the smart Boston reader. Those were more fun to read than the national columnists who were in publications like Sports Illustrated who wrote about the green, green grass and the eternal hope and promise of the Olympics, the brotherhood, and so on. And he said, how do I get this local insidery voice, the voice of the cynic, who can drop a very current reference to the snowstorm we just had or the dumb thing the mayor just said, or the goofy haircut of the backup point guard on the Celtics. How can I translate this to a national audience? They don't care about the snowstorm. They don't care about our mayor. They have no idea who the Celtics backup point guard is. And if I explain all this stuff, I'll kill the jokes, but also kill the tone. The you and I get it tone. You and me together, pal. That tone. And his insight was popular culture. That's what I and the sports fans have in common, he said. I can take that same tone that I'm using with Boston sports fans in my little column, and the rest of the country doesn't really get it. They're left out, but I can bring in popular culture references. And so he would write a column comparing the NBA All-Star team with lines of dialogue in The Godfather, that sort of thing. 90210, that was a big point of reference for him in those days. We didn't have a shared currency of local politics or local sports team lore, but we were all watching Seinfeld and we all knew who Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro were. We all were listening to Kanye or watching the Kardashians or if not all of us, enough of us. Definitely more than the people who would get a joke about a new restaurant in the Boston suburbs. This takes us to Stern and the subject of learned wit. It also takes us to The Simpsons. I kind of skipped over that. Stern had that freedom too. That freedom of going anywhere you want, starting where you want, ending where you want, making the characters do anything, say anything. Stern felt that as a novelist. All that freedom that those Simpson writers felt when they could make their characters do anything, Stern felt that too. All novelists do. Many talk themselves out of it. That's not where I want to go with this. I want to be more down the middle. I want to have more rules for my characters. Stern said, forget that. Forget that. And for a subject, he had learned wit. He was essentially doing what Bill Simmons did with pop culture. A couple hundred years later, only for Stern, it was all the stuff that they learned in school. 
Stern himself went to Cambridge, and there were all these people reading novels and school kids studying Latin and Enlightenment discoveries about medicine and the body and other natural world phenomena. Those are the ideas in his mind. Those are the things he wants to explore. And he's got the temperament that finds the humor in it, that pushes these ideas to their limits and says... Hang on, why do we need to be so starchy about the church or John Locke or a main character's background and birth and childhood? Why can't we accept that in an imperfect world, all these things will be imperfect and ridiculous? And if they're not ridiculous themselves, our taking them so seriously might be ridiculous. You might think Citizen Kane is not ridiculous, but you still might find the person who loves Citizen Kane and demands respect for it as the greatest movie of all time, you might find that person ridiculous. And so you work your way into ridicule that way. All human endeavor looked at in the right way is essentially ridiculous. Here's the counter-argument. Finding everything ridiculous can be solipsistic, sophomoric. You could say it's too easy to, it's, oh, it's so easy to crack jokes. It's a lot harder to get at human pain and suffering. And if you mock everything, you're not really doing the things that novels can do at their best. You're not presenting us with the seriousness of life. And anyone who's been in pain or been in love or lost a loved one or experienced any of those powerful emotions knows that life is not just a bunch of jokes. So, from a formal perspective, there's another problem with the learned wit, or even more so with the pop culture references of a Bill Simmons. They don't last very long. This is one respect where Johnson sort of gets it right. This kind of a book depends on readers who are immersed in particular ideas and themes, a zeitgeist Some of those ideas might last dozens of years, hundreds. It's still funny that Tristram Shandy interrupts himself so often that it's not until book three that he gets around to being born. His parents' conception of him, which itself gets interrupted, is a comical way to begin a novel. It was comical then, and it's comical now. But some of the other aspects of the book might fly over our heads, or not mean as much. Often, we still get the spirit of the satire, even if we don't feel the bullseye hitting home the way a contemporary might have. Bill Simmons from 10 years ago already feels odd, outdated. You think, oh yeah, you too went on a tour that summer. Oh yeah, there was someone on American Idol that everyone was talking about. The Simpsons can be like that too. I find myself pausing the episodes as I watch them with my kids, sometimes to explain the jokes, not because I want to, but because they want me to. They'll say, is this a movie reference? They can tell when it goes into its movie reference mode. Sometimes you need to get the movie reference to find the joke funny at all. And sometimes it works, even if you don't understand the reference. But anyway, it feels knowing no matter what, and insidery and full of energy. Is that off-putting or charming and compelling? We'll talk more about this when we get to the book. Tristram Shandy itself.
So here's what we're doing today, in addition to what we've already done. First, we're going to look at the biography of Lawrence Stern, who he was, what he was all about, what his life was like. He was a clergyman, for an example. I mentioned that, an Anglican priest. It's easy to forget that part of his life. And he was sick and dying, even as he wrote this extremely comic novel. It's easy to forget that part, too. Then we will turn to Tristram Shandy. We'll run through the book's themes and innovations. And finally, we'll ask why we care. Why does this matter? My view is, if it's just breaking rules, then the hell with it. If it's just pop culture references or learned wit references, or if it's just telling us, hey, novels begin with the character's birth, but mine doesn't. In other words, if it thumbs its nose at a lot of stuff, but doesn't do anything that a novel does at its best, well, that's all well and good. But to really engage me, I need more. I need the plus. As I put it when we talked about genre works, I need, with experimental literature, I need experimentation plus. I need satire plus. By plus, I mean something human, something insightful about people, something that can move me as well as make me laugh, or make me something that can move me as well as make me nod with appreciation at how clever the author is. I don't care how clever the author is. I want to be moved. I'm on a journey, people. My journey is not just checking off boxes to see who did what in a novel. I <laughs> When you're in the ditch, you don't care about that. You need a helping hand. Does Tristram, Tristram Shandy give it? Does it give us a plus? We'll have all that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Stern was born in 1713 in Ireland and died 55 years later in London. Famously, he was a late bloomer as a famous novelist, not publishing the first volume of Tristram Shandy until 1760 when he was in his 40s. 
He continued to publish volumes of Tristram Shandy for the next seven years, coming out with nine volumes in all, which may or may not have completed the book. Critics have different opinions on this. He published one other classic or near classic, A Sentimental Journey Through France and Italy, which came out in the last year or so of his life. What was he doing before writing Tristram Shandy? His parents were poor. His father was an Englishman struggling as a common soldier in the army, while his mother was French and Irish. Apparently, the marriage was made to settle a debt that Stern's father owed to his future father-in-law. Young Lawrence bounced around as his father was shuffled from one army barracks to another all through England and Ireland. In 1723, the 10-year-old Lawrence was finally able to attend school in Yorkshire. Eight years later, his father died, broke, and Lawrence went to live with some relatives before a cousin finally arranged to have him enter Cambridge by working as a servant to other students. Now, wow, what a detail. I could stop there. In some ways, that's all I need to know about Lawrence Stern and his relationship with society. Smart enough to go to a top university, but so far below everyone else on the social ladder that he was there as a servant to his fellow students. No doubt there were many of those students. No doubt many of them were not as bright as Stern was. What does that turn you into? But a cynic who thinks for himself and doubts the conventional wisdom of the ruling establishment, you know what it's like. Oh, sure, I know everyone thinks this, but they might be wrong because they are dumb and because they are all self-serving. And Stern, when he grew up, applied this view to everything, as we see in Tristram Shandy and in Stern's letters. And he also applied it outside of the book to the issue of slavery, as we will see at the end of our look at Stern the person. We'll get there in a few paragraphs. Stern met a few wild students at Cambridge who introduced him to drinking parties and erotic literature then highly taboo, of course, and I'm sure this was all very irreverent, but at the same time, Stern needed money. So after he came out of Cambridge, he followed his uncle into the clergy, not out of religious sorry, not out of religious zeal. That was a strange thing. My teeth clacked together. <laughs> Should probably edit stuff like that out, shouldn't I? My teeth clacked together in a weird way. It made me shiver. Eee. Religious zeal. Not, nothing against religious zeal. It's just those G sound. Those G's and Z's. Okay. Back to, back to the podcast. Not out of religious zeal. Our friend Mr. Stern did not have that. But he was looking for some stable income. That's what the clergy provided for him. He moved up for the next five years or so. And he also got married. Unfortunately, his marriage was unfortunate. The marriage was rocky. She was unpleasant, it is said. And Stern cheated on her incessantly, it is also said, which may have caused or contributed to the unpleasantness. And she eventually went insane. I'm sure the infidelity, at the very minimum, didn't help there either. And at the same time, Stern was diagnosed with consumption. So there he was, this dying dying, unhappily married, philandering clergyman who then launches himself onto the literary stage with a very unusual work full of 
both sermons and immoral, I guess you'd say, quote-unquote, loose morals, maybe, characters and ideas, and the book is a raucous success. London is abuzz with it. Sells out. Stern knows a lot, and he's always one step ahead of the reader, and he's funny, and everyone reads the book and can't stop talking about the book or its author. One way or another, love it or hate it, touches a nerve. And Stern lives the rest of his life, which is not that many years left. He lives it famous and successful. His wife has left him now, and he makes a last-ditch effort to save his health by traveling to the continent. But it doesn't work. He dies in 1768. Seven or eight years later, as the debate about slavery raged on in England, a former slave named Ignatius Sancho published some correspondence that he'd had with Stern when Stern had been alive. Sancho was trying to rouse support for the anti-slavery movement, and he asked the famous and celebrated Stern to help. He wrote, quote, The subject, and by that he meant combating slavery, handled in your striking manner would ease the yoke, perhaps, of many, but if only one. Gracious God, what a feast to a benevolent heart, end quote. And Stern replied, There is a strange coincidence, Sancho, in the little events as well as in the great ones of this world, for I had been writing a tender tale of the sorrows of a friendless poor Negro girl, and my eyes had scarce done smarting with it when your letter of recommendation in behalf of so many of her brethren and sisters came to me. But why her brethren, or yours, Sancho, any more than mine? It is by the finest tints and most insensible gradations that nature descends from the fairest face about St. James's to the sootiest complexion in Africa. At which tint of these is it that the ties of blood are to cease? And how many shades must we descend lower still in the scale, ere mercy is to vanish with them? But tis no uncommon thing, my good Sancho." for one half of the world to use the other half of it like brutes, and then endeavor to make them so. End quote. It's not necessary that Stern had this view of slavery, but it helps. I'm always glad when a writer from the past seems to have been on the right side of history, transcending the issues of the day, seeing the humanity in what might have been something he was blind to. His heart was in the right place here, and got, even if those, some of the language is maybe not how we would put things today. But guess what? We can see a lot from this letter. His conversational style, his authorial eagerness to bond with the reader, and his devotion to using common sense principles to cut through whatever scholastic arguments have been made on one side or the other. His final sentence is the key. The world is all effed up, my good Sancho. Look at the hypocrisy here. It's not right. It's not right, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, and it's not right. That leads us to Tristram Shandy, where we will see what was right and wrong with novels, what was right and wrong with the characters, and the ideas of the day, and whether humor can tackle any of these problems, and if so, how and to what effect. We'll have that story after this.
put Tristram Shandy in some context. What were novels doing? And what did Shandy do that was different? And what was the learned wit that Lawrence Stern was examining and playing against? Let's start with E.M. Forster. Here's a quote. He was writing, of course, over a hundred years later. He says, quote, There is a charmed stagnation about the whole epic. The more the characters do, the less gets done. The less they have to say, the more they talk. The harder they think, the softer they get. Facts have an unholy tendency to unwind and trip up the past instead of begetting the future, as in well-conducted books. Obviously, a god is hidden in Tristram Shandy, and his name is Muddle, and some readers cannot accept him. End quote. What does that suggest to us, that novels have a particular way of moving forward, that well-conducted books have A, lead to B, lead to C, lead to D, the march through time. Sometimes there are flashbacks to explain motives or fill in key moments that deepen our understanding of the story or the character's dilemmas, but the, the reader is following a narrative forward, and the author is presenting it to us. The author is there with us like a guide or a god to keep the rules of time in order and to organize things for us and to select events and present them in a way that makes sense. And maybe the author will get out of the way enough for us to see those events as they occur and to relax into the narrative so we're not fighting it all the time. And so the events and emotions can overtake us. That's well-conducted in Forster's world. That's what he means by it. And to do otherwise feels like a muddle. And why is this so well-conducted? We can ask that, but the answer is pretty obvious. It follows life. Of course, we're born, we live, we die. That's the narrative we have for ourselves and our fellow creatures. And well-conducted novels follow that pattern, whether it's a society or a couple, or most commonly of all, especially in Stern's time, the individual. What were the novels then, and how were they organized? Mostly, they were the story of a life. Daniel Defoe had Robinson Crusoe and Moll Flanders. Jonathan Swift had the story of Gulliver. Henry Fielding had Tom Jones, Tobias Smollett's The Adventures of Roderick Random. Samuel Richardson and Pamela. It's a form that's still with us. J.D. Salinger starts the, his Catcher in the Rye with a mocking of it. The first thing you'll probably want to know, says Holden Caulfield, is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. End quote. That's the beginning of The Catcher in the Rye. Tristram Shandy takes this convention, which was already old in his day, centuries before Salinger. But he turns that convention on his head, too. He tries to start with his birth. But he goes back a little earlier, nine months earlier, to the moment of his conception, and he interrupts himself again and again. And by chapter 14, he's lamenting that he still hasn't gotten to his birth and that maybe he can't because there are so many things that need to be said in order to tell a story. I have been at it these six weeks and am not yet born, he says. 
lamenting the fate of the author. What Stern knew and what his predecessors and followers also know is that an orderly march is not the only way that people can communicate or tell a story. It's not the only pattern we have for a story. There's also a different model, the model of a great storyteller, a raconteur, a person who sits in a bar or at a table or next to a fireplace and holds forth a mind that goes this way and that, pulling in ideas, bending the rules of time, making analogies and references and allusions, pausing for jokes, anecdotes. You might say that these days, certain podcasters follow this path as well. And there's no harm in that. Hopefully. Let's hear the opening of Tristram Shandy. The title page suggests that we're going to hear a conventional Bildungsroman, and instead we get this turned upside down almost immediately. It begins The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy Gent, Chapter 1. I wish either my father or my mother, or indeed both of them, as they were in duty, both equally bound to it, had minded what they were about when they begot me, had they duly considered how much depended upon what they were then doing, that not only the production of a rational being was concerned in it, but that possibly the happy formation and temperature of his body, perhaps his genius and the very cast of his mind, and, for aught they knew to the contrary, even the fortunes of his whole house, might take their turn from the humors and dispositions which were then uppermost, had they duly weighed and considered all this, and proceeded accordingly, I am verily persuaded I should have made a quite different figure in the world from that which the reader, from that in which the reader is likely to see me. Believe me, good folks, this is not so inconsiderable a thing as many of you may think it. You have all, I dare say, heard of the animal spirits as how they are transfused from father to son, etc., etc., and a great deal to that purpose. Well, you may take my word that nine parts in ten of a man's sense or his nonsense, his successes and miscarriages in this world, depend upon their motions and activity and the different tracks and trains you put them into, so that when they are once set a-going, whether right or wrong, "'Tis not a halfpenny matter. "'Away they go, cluttering like hay-go-mad, "'and by treading the same steps over and over again, "'they presently make a road of it, "'as plain and as smooth as a garden walk, "'which, when they are once used to, "'the devil himself sometimes "'shall not be able to drive them off it. "'Pray, my dear,' quoth my mother, "'have you not forgot to wind up the clock?' "'Good God!' cried my father, making an exclamation, but taking care to moderate his voice at the same time. "'Did ever woman, since the creation of the world, interrupt a man with such a silly question?' "'Pray, what was your father saying?' "'Nothing.' You get a sense here of the learned wit of Lawrence Stern. The next chapter is all about the theories of the soul and the creation of personality.' So important to have the moment, the moment of conception being in place, let's say. <laughs> Serious, sober, intense. Uh, 
how should we describe? Well, maybe we shouldn't even try to describe it, what it should be. But we know that it shouldn't be this. We know it shouldn't be a woman saying, pray, my dear, have you not forgot to wind up the clock right at the moment? We hear in the book how Tristram heard about this moment of conception and the interruption, which his father blamed for Tristram's problems later, and which his uncle Toby told him about. Tristram's father and uncle are two of the book's great characters. We'll have more about the characters in a moment, but first let's hear some more of the learned wit and the way it intersects with the book's bodiness. You heard it right from the beginning. How my mother and father begot me. That's an interesting place to start. Right? Not with some immaculate birth, but with the sexual activity that led to the birth. It's part of human life. It's not always part of novels, especially when they're written by clergymen. When you read contemporary reviews of Tristram Shandy, they nearly all mention this one way or the other. Either, yes, how refreshing. He talks about sex. They don't say it in those terms, but that's what they mean. Or they say, this is terrible, the author has terrible morals. Indecent, obscene, and gross, said one review. Corrupting the youth, that old objection. The other words you hear over and over are Cervantic, meaning following Cervantes, like Cervantes, and the English Rabelais. We give Tristram Shandy enormous credit for being the OG of experimental literature. The Wikipedia page for experimental literature starts with Tristram Shandy and then jumps 150 years to the next entry. That's how important and influential and and uh, commemorated Tristram Shandy is. But we see in the contemporary reviews of Tristram Shandy that readers who knew exactly what Stern knew and who had the same models in mind, who had read the same things that he had, we know from those reviews that there were at least two great works that Stern drew upon, Cervantes and Don Quixote, and Rabelais, who was another author on our list. Rabelais is this kind of reference for the cultured person, this sort of knowing style. Stern will quote or paraphrase John Locke or the Bible. He'll include whole sermons. He'll drop references to scientific theories and so on, including this theory at the beginning that the soul is created and that from the moment of conception can play a part in the genius or the the fortunes of the person who is created. Stern also addresses the reader. That's another uh, one of his innovations. We'll hear a I don't know if it was an innovation, an element that comes across as innovative, different. People were addressing the readers in other works. Certainly Tom Jones is famous for it, but we'll hear we'll hear how Stern pushes that. He takes it further. We'll hear an example of this in a moment. He changes who the reader is. Sometimes he'll address the reader as if it's a he, sometimes a she, sometimes a crowd, sometimes an audience. As a reader, you're in the game. You're working too. You're wondering who you are, maybe, or who Stern expects or invites or assumes you to be. Can that be tiring to jump around like that? Maybe. There's more innovations too. There's a famous page that's all black, just a big black square 
which different publishers handle differently. A black page to mourn a character's death. Another page is marbled. Blank pages represent pages torn out. Another blank page for the reader to fill in with a description. Misplaced chapters, apparently misnumbered, pop up out of sequence. A character crosses himself and a cross appears in the narrative. The work gets digressive and a squiggly graph appears to discuss the ins and outs and ups and downs of the narrative progress. This is what I meant earlier when I said that it it drives me crazy. I said this a couple episodes ago, that it drives me crazy when someone goes all gaga over an author who uses footnotes or puts his own name in the work as a character or so on, as if they've done something incredibly miraculous to do this to a novel. It's a technique. It might have a certain effect, but it's not new. It's not, it's not particularly surprising that an author can think of those things. It's not an act of genius or even of invention, particularly. Authors can think of these things and can dare to put them in their books, and they have done so. To be excited about the book, we need more than just the fact that a few rules have been broken and rant. Now, breaking the rules. For some, it's a deal breaker. Let's start with let's start with some positive reviews of Stern. This is another contemporary review. This is William Kentrick writing in 1759 in the monthly review. Kentrick says, "Of lives and adventures, the public have had enough, and perhaps more than enough, long ago. A consideration that probably induced the droll Mr. Tristram Shandy to entitle the performance before us, his life and opinions. Perhaps also he had in this a view to the design he professes of giving the world two such volumes every year during the remainder of his life. Now, adventures worth relating are not every day to be met with, so that in time his budget might be exhausted, but his opinions will, in all probability, afford him matter enough to write about, though he should live to the age of Methuselah. Not but that our author husbands his adventures with great economy, and sows them so extremely thin that, in the manner he has begun, his narrative may very well last as long as he lives." Nor, if that be long, and he as good as his word, will his history make an inconsiderable figure among the numerous diminutive tomes of a modern library. But indeed, Mr. Shandy seems so extremely fond of digressions and of giving his historical readers the slip on all occasions that we are not a little apprehensive he may, sometime or other, give them the slip in good earnest and leave the work before his story be finished. And to say the truth, we should, for our own parts, be sorry to lose him in that manner, as we have no reason to think that we shall not be very willing to accompany him to the end of his tale, notwithstanding all his denunciations of prolixity. For if we were sure he would not serve us this trick, we have no objection to his telling his story his own way, though he went as far about to come to the point as Sancho Panza himself. Every author, as the present justly observes, has a way of his own in bringing his points to bear, and every man to his own taste. Horace Walpole, a few months later, took a slightly different view. 
writing in a letter to a friend, Sir David Dalrymple, quote, At present, nothing is talked of, nothing admired, but what I cannot help calling a very insipid and tedious performance. It is a kind of novel called The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, the great humor of which consists in the whole narration always going backwards. I can conceive a man saying that it would be droll to write a book in that manner, but have no notion of his persevering in executing it. It makes one smile two or three times at the beginning, but in recompense makes one yawn for two hours. The characters are tolerably kept up, but the humor is forever attempted and missed. The best thing in it is a sermon, oddly coupled with a good deal of body, and both the composition of a clergyman. The man's head indeed was a little turned before, now topsy-turvy with his success and fame. Then it goes on to talk about how much Stern has made from this book. Seems a little, perhaps a little authorial jealousy coming from Horace Walpole, but you can get a sense from these reviews what everyone is talking about, right? The fact that the novel is full of digressions, it doesn't go forward, it meanders, it goes backwards, it doesn't get to the point, it doesn't arrive, takes forever to get somewhere. In the first review we heard, they said, you know what? We don't care. We hope this doesn't end. We like spending time with this author and this voice. In the second review, Horace Walpole, he says, funny at first, gets kind of tiring. That's kind of the, the general view of Tristram Shandy, I would say. Edmund Burke, writing around the same time, says, yes, the digressions and asides grow tiresome, but it's forgivable because the work is so original. I like his review because it doesn't take a theoretical approach, but comes from the spirit of a reader. To read a work and say, this doesn't work because novels shouldn't do X, or this is important because novels usually do X and this one does Y, to me, that kind of review misses the point. How are you as a reader affected? Are you bored? Are you laughing? Are you in on the game? Are you exhausted? Do you feel like the author is telling you something you want to hear, need to hear, like to hear? Are you growing? Let's hear a little more of the book itself to give you a taste. This is chapter four, in which the moment of conception and the famous interruption is described in further detail. Chapter four. I know there are readers in the world, as well as many other good people in it, who are no readers at all, who find themselves ill at ease unless they are led into the whole secret from first to last of everything which concerns you. It is in pure compliance with this humor of theirs, and from a backwardness in my nature to disappoint any one soul living, that I have been so very particular already, as my life and opinions are likely to make some noise in the world, and, if I conjecture right, will take in all ranks, professions, and denominations of men whatever, be no less read than the pilgrim's progress itself, and in the end prove the very thing which Montaigne dreaded his essays should turn out, that is, a book for a parlor window. I find it necessary to consult everyone a little in his turn, and therefore must beg pardon for going on a little farther in the same way. For which cause, right glad I am, that I have begun the history of myself in the way I have done, and that I am able to go on tracing everything in it as Horace says, ab ovo. 
Horace, I know, does not recommend this fashion altogether, but that gentleman is speaking only of an epic poem or a tragedy. I forget which. Besides, if it was not so, I should beg Mr. Horace's pardon, for in writing what I have said about, I shall confine myself neither to his rules nor to any man's rules that ever lived. To such, however, as do not choose to go so far back into these things, I can give no better advice than that they skip over the remaining part of this chapter. For I declare beforehand, tis wrote only for the curious and inquisitive. Shut the door. I was begot in the night, betwixt the first Sunday and the first Monday in the month of March, in the year of our Lord 1718. I am positive I was, but how I came to be so very particular in my account of a thing which happened before I was born is owing to another small anecdote known only in our own family, but now made public for the better clearing up this point. My father, you must know, who was originally a turkey merchant, but had left off business for some years in order to retire to and die upon his paternal estate in the county of blank, was, I believe, one of the most regular men in everything he did, whether twas matter of business or matter of amusement, that ever lived. As a small specimen of this extreme exactness of his, to which he was in truth a slave, he had made it a rule for many years of his life, on the first Sunday night of every month throughout the whole year, as certain as ever the Sunday night came, to wind up a large house clock, which we had standing on the back stairs head with his own hands, and being somewhere between fifty and sixty years of age at the time I have been speaking of, he had likewise gradually brought some other little family concernments to the same period, in order, as he would often say to my uncle Toby, to get them all out of the way at one time and be no more plagued and pestered with them the rest of the month. It was attended but with one misfortune, which, in a great measure, fell upon myself, and the effects of which I fear I shall carry with me to my grave, namely, that from an unhappy association of ideas, which have no connection in nature, it so fell out at length, that my poor mother could never hear the said clock wound up, but the thoughts of some other things unavoidably popped into her head, and vice versa which strange combination of ideas the sagacious Locke, who certainly understood the nature of these things better than most men, affirms to have produced more reactions than all other sources of prejudice whatsoever. End quote. So there it is. I'm not sure if you were able to follow that. It might be something you have to read a couple times. It's a very famous passage. So there it is, the father regular as a watch himself, as a clock, has a personal rule that on the first Sunday night he's going to wind the clock. He likes being regular. He likes having these rules. He likes following these patterns. And he decides that since he's already going to be winding the clock, he's going to get other little family concernments out of the way at one time so he doesn't have to deal with them the rest of the month be plagued and pestered by them. One of them is having sex with his wife. Check it off the list. Do that. Wind the clock. Have sex. Get it done. Don't have to worry about it the rest of the month. Sounds a little like Mr. Roper 
a bit for those of you with your heads in the 70s and 80s like mine, you will get that reference. Okay, this is the bodiness we've heard about from our reviewers. Stern's going there. He's unafraid to go there in his pretty much PG-rated way. But it also gives us a window into the characters. We see the father following his rules, trying to apply reason, which is a comical effect. He tries to give Tristram a good name and screws that up too. We also see the mother. I like this too. The mother who's who's in this game along with the father following this pattern. What happens to her? The connection between the winding of the clock and the having of the sex, the family concernments that happen on the first Sunday night of every month. Well, she connects the two. She can't think of one without the other. Locke himself, John Locke, the sagacious philosopher John Locke, has told us how people connect things with one another. Stern takes that principle and applies it to something as humorous as this. And the father, it's a pattern for the father to try to get things right and to blow it. He tries to give Tristram a good name. He screws that up. It's Important for Tristram to have a long nose, he thinks, but they end up with a lousy doctor who smashes his face in with the forceps at the moment of birth. Tristram is accidentally circumcised by a falling window. All this from our country parson and told in a bright conversational style by someone who's confiding in us. It is a friendly voice, maybe a little risque, but also immersed in the deepest works of literature and philosophy. There are great themes here, how time works. Here we're back to The Simpsons again. Novelists have this kind of freedom that those Simpson writers did when they realized they were working with animation and not with real people. Novelists have even more freedom. Everything you can think, everything you can put into words is fair game. So Stern looks at how time works and why it's as likely in a novel to go backwards as forwards, how an author might never catch up. Once you start telling a story, first you tell the story of the wife asking about the clock, and then a few chapters later you go back even further and you explain why that idea came into her mind. You're getting farther away from the birth, not closer to it. And then you think about the nature of time and the nature of authorship. And you talk about that. Humor and tone and time, those are all themes. Stern is aware of them even as he demonstrates them. We get the philosophy behind the narrative techniques and we get the philosophy behind the philosophy. And then we scrap all that and just hear stories. Tristram Shandy and Uncle Toby are very likable. And the voice, the Shandy-esque voice, is likable when it's not being tiresome. This is the key to the book. For a reader today, sometimes you'll be in on the gag. Sometimes you might scratch your head. But you'll enjoy it anyway. And sometimes you might need to do a little digging to figure out just why this is so compelling. What made this funny? What's he talking about here? Seems to be referring to some scientific ideas I don't follow, some some history, some philosopher I've never heard of. It's not as uncomplicated to read Tristram Shandy as it is to read something 
that came out this year that you find funny, but it might be more rewarding if you like learning about history and what people thought in another century. Something that's stood the test of time, like Tristram Shandy. Why would this passage be funny? That's not a reading experience that everyone wants to have, but it can pay some dividends for those who find themselves drawn to the author or the novel or the time period. Chapter 6, this might be our last excerpt here. Chapter 6, Stern address, or Shandy, Tristram addresses the reader. This is the entire brief chapter, chapter 6. In the beginning of the last chapter, I informed you exactly when I was born, but I did not inform you how. No, that particular was reserved entirely for a chapter by itself. Besides, sir, as you and I are in a manner perfect strangers to each other, it would not have been proper to have let you into too many circumstances relating to myself all at once. You must have a little patience. I have undertaken, you see, to write not only my life, but my opinions also, hoping and expecting that your knowledge of my character and of what kind of a mortal I am by the one would give you a better relish for the other. As you proceed farther with me, the slight acquaintance, which is now beginning betwixt us, will grow into familiarity, and that unless one of us is in fault, will terminate in friendship. Odium preclarum. Then nothing which has touched me will be thought trifling in its nature or tedious in its telling. Therefore, my dear friend and companion, if you should think me somewhat sparing of my narrative on my first setting out, bear with me, and let me go on and tell my story my own way. Or, if I should seem now and then to trifle upon the road, or should sometimes put on a fool's cap with a bell to it for a moment or two as we pass along. Don't fly off, but rather courteously give me credit for a little more wisdom than appears upon my outside. And as we jog on, either laugh with me or at me, or in short, do anything. Only keep your temper. End quote. Even Bill Simmons, not a literary giant like Lawrence Stern. Even Bill Simmons has some readable columns from 10 years ago. In one of them, he talks about losing his dog. I don't remember if there are pop culture references in that column, but I don't remember the outdated nature of any pop culture references stopping me either. His love for his dog came through. It's not great literature, but at least it has something that lasts. What is it that lasts? Usually, Simmons' columns are full of quick expiration topics. Who's going to win this week's playoff games and why? Here's what to watch. Here's how to bet. There's very little to reason to read them a year later or to expect them to make sense. But guess what? That's how much of the stuff in novels is as well. That expires too. If we're reading to find out how people are living in the world... Many of the details have a shelf life. Oh, wow. What a nice record collection this character has. That means one thing at one point, a few years later, we're traveling backwards in time. It's not contemporary anymore. It's not a, a reference. And then the next one, maybe in the sequel, look at all the CDs he's bought. So on. Same thing. Ten years later, you look back at it and think, oh, wow, forgot this was written a while ago. You might say, look at this Muslim American in the year 2002. Look at what she faces when she goes to the airport. That could be a very vivid passage, something the author, you can tell, is trying to tell us about, giving us the news, 
delivering the news. Well, years and years later, it can still be valuable, but now it's a historical record. And that's not always up to the author. What lasts and what doesn't, that's pretty much out of the hands of the author. Posterity decides. Maybe that moment in 1985 will resonate deeply in 2020 or 2050 or 2085, and maybe it won't. Authors can avoid the most contemporary references like memes or fads or cliches or brand names, but eventually everything gets older and can be chewed up by what the future finds relevant about the past and what it doesn't. So what lasts? What endures? Some will say the timeless relationships, mothers and sons, Husbands and wives, bosses and employees, rulers and subjects, siblings, rivals, enemies, physical harm, sickness, tragedies, unfathomable grief and surprising joys and everything in between. Done well, there are human elements there that can appeal to us, that let us overlook the leaps we have to make to catch up. The sunset might be the same a thousand years ago as it is today. The stars. The Simpsons. The tone at first, the first few episodes of The Simpsons, the tone was kind of off. And I think the problem was they were only going for satire. Ha ha, the kid's sarcastic. Here's a dad who chokes his son. They're drawn sharp and ugly. This is its more about TV sitcoms than real life. The joke here is that this family is not the kind of family you would see on TV, and maybe if you're anti-establishment, there's some value there. Let's blow things up. But where's the humanity in that? Well, the show soon found its footing when it found its humanity. There are heartbreaking moments in those early Simpsons episodes. Not the very first ones, but the ones that came soon after. Where Homer wants something and is powerless to get it. Where he gets in his own way, or where the long-suffering Marge finally gets her day, or where Bart's Weisenheimer exterior is cracked, or where Lisa's efforts to be good are crushed once again by an endlessly cruel world. But there's love and hope there too. And in Tristram Shandy, we have those moments. They might not be as vivid to a modern-day reader as an episode of The Simpsons is, but they're in there for those who give it some time, who spend some time with the book. Let's hear from the great 20th century writer Catherine Ann Porter and give her the final word, or almost the final word, on this novel. Tristram Shandy, she says, quote, contains more living, breathing people you can see and hear, whose garments have texture between your finger and thumb, whose flesh is knit firmly to their bones, who walk about their affairs with audible footsteps than any other one novel in the world. End quote. She says that the Shandies, quote, all live in one house with floorboards beneath their boot soles, a roof over their heads, the fire burning and giving off real smoke, cooking smells coming from the kitchen, real weather outside, and air blowing through the windows. When Dr. Slop cuts his thumb, real blood issues from it, and everybody has a navel and his proper distribution of his vital organs. End quote. Real people, 
real characters. That's why we still read Tristram Shandy. That's why Dr. Johnson was wrong for once. It's why Tristram Shandy has lasted. It's why The Simpsons will last too. There's the plus we're looking for. Characters both within the book and coming from the author to the reader. That connection. Human connections. The spirit of the thing. The feeling. The achievements of experimental literature can lose their importance. They're destined to be erased over time. Whatever breathtaking elements their novelty once had wear off as the novelty gets absorbed. And novelty is just that. Novelty. No more, no less. But the energy is still there in Tristram Shandy. It's about feelings more than reason. People have said that about Stern's work. And the, the spirit carries forth, even if the innovations are no longer enough in and of themselves to commend the book to us. The voice and spirit are still there, and the characters are still alive, and the work still has energy. It's like playing a smart, funny, entertaining game. You might not feel like playing at one particular moment, and when you are playing, it might get tiring to play for too long at once. But if you're in the game, if you're in the right mood, there's no one or nothing more enjoyable. The maneuvers and accomplishments of an avant-garde are destined to fade. But the spirit of the avant-garde soldiers moving forward, or in this case, forward and backward and sideways, are what survive. That's going to do it for our look at Tristram Shandy. I hope you enjoyed that. We will be back next week with Machado de Assis, I hope, at long last. He was a huge fan of Lawrence Stern, so now I think we're ready for him. Machado embraced Stern as a forerunner, for sure. Mentions it right in the first paragraph of his great work. You know what, though? I'm feeling a little attack coming on, a kind of fever. I suspect we might have to interrupt our progression of Cervantes to Stern to Machado in order to take on a couple of other things. A beast in the jungle might be waiting for us. That's the story. The beast in our jungle is the story. The Beast in the Jungle by Mr. Henry James. We also got a request from a, a listener in New Zealand that I might not be able to ignore. So we will see how it goes. I suspect our next week or two will... Be a little bit up in the air, but in any case, we'll be here for you, dear listener. That is our plan, because that is who we are, and that is what we do. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.